Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. Continue our look at the 75th anniversary of Batman by going through all the theatrical releases. We need to decide what order to do some of these movies. Now, originally I was leaning towards doing everything in the release order, which would have put the animated Batman Mask of the Phantasm in this spot, after Batman Returns and before Batman Forever. Thinking about it, I've decided to change that up a little bit and do Batman Forever and Batman and Robin before returning to Mask of the Phantasm for a couple of reasons. One is that with some of the cast carrying over with Tim Burton producing all four, this really is a complete franchise. And two, I felt that after discussing Batman and Robin, I was going to want some sort of a palate cleanser before going into the Catwoman film starring Halle Berry and then continuing from there into the Nolan films. So this month we are looking at Batman Forever. Now, the original working title for Batman Forever was Batman Triumphant. That was the title that they had planned. Apparently, it was renamed because they felt that Batman Triumphant would be a little too spoilery in the title. You know, they didn't want to tell people before the movie starts, Batman wins, as though that's in doubt. It's more how he wins and what's the cost. So instead of giving it a title where they say, yeah, he wins this time, they gave it a title that says, yeah, he wins every time. So the first two Tim Burton movies were financially successful in theaters and on home video, but neither of them really had the toy sale impact that Warner was looking for, and Warner also got a lot of flack and feedback from parents that they felt the direction the franchise was going would have made it harder to bring their kids in the first place, which would have cut down a lot on potential ticket sales. So for the third film, Warner Brothers decided not to involve Tim Burton, who, as we said before, really doesn't like to do sequels and probably would have been hard to talk into coming back and directing again anyway. And they wanted to go in a different direction. And the direction that they picked was to pass the director role on to Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher's directing career started in 1974, the TV movie Virginia Hill. His first theatrical release was 1981's The Incredible Shrinking Woman. He has since gone on to direct St. Elmo's Fire, Lost Boys, Cousins, Flatliners, Dying Young, Falling Down the Client. And then in 1995, he did Batman Forever. So he's got... A respectable career up to this point with a variety of styles, typically more dramatic than comedic, but a little bit of everything, and primarily they were financially successful. So he seemed like a solid bet for delivering something, even if nothing on that list really speaks superhero at that time. The first draft of the script was written by The Bachelors. So this is a married couple. Their writing credits up to this point included one episode of The Equalizer and two episodes of McGee and Me. Since Batman, they also did a short of The Spitting Image, My Name is Modesty, A Modesty Blaze Adventure, and they also did the screenplay for the upcoming Pompeii. The wife on that team is Janet Scott Batchelor. As I said, they are a writing team, and they seem to be doing it all the way through. They've got the same credits for each of them. Schumacher wasn't completely happy with the draft that they had, so he brought in Akiva Goldsman to do a rewrite on their script. So Goldsman's writing credits up to this point were the screenplay of The Client. That was actually his debut script for a movie that Schumacher also directed based on a John Grisham novel, and which also starred Tommy Lee Jones. Next, he went into Silent Fall, and then Batman Forever was his third credit. He would go on to do Batman and Robin and others, so we'll talk about the later career of most of these people after those. So up to this point, he seemed like a good fit. He had written a couple of movies that had done quite well. He had worked with Joel Schumacher before, but he wasn't a name that would draw people in on their own. So he would have been relatively cheap to get as well. And a lot of the changes that we we're going to see come in the cast. The biggest change that we notice is that Michael Keaton is no longer playing Batman. Keaton met with Schumacher when they were talking about the new directions that they were taking with the franchise. They went through it a bit and... 
the way Joel Schumacher describes it in the commentary is that Keaton just wasn't particularly interested in continuing with the direction that Schumacher had in mind, which is why it was opened up for recasting. I was bringing it to theater when this one came out, and the rumors that we were hearing that way, which may or may not have been founded, were that he was also a bit upset because the Batsuit is very hot and very heavy, and he learned that John Wesley's ship had an air conditioner built into the belt of the Flash suit that he used for the TV series, and yet they kept denying a similar air conditioner unit to be put into the Batsuit that was used for the films. So instead of Michael Keaton, we get Val Kilmer, who started with Top Secret, went into after-school specials, Real Genius, Top Gun, The Murders in the Room Org, The Man Who Broke a Thousand Chains, Willow, Billy the Kid, Kill Me Again, The Doors, Thunderheart, True Romance, The Real McCoy, Tombstone was shortly before Batman Forever, and that's the role that got Joel Schumacher's attention, and that's the reason this was offered to him. Following Batman Forever, he didn't return as Batman. He did Heat. He did the 1996 version of The Island of Dr. Moreau, which was, I felt, a disappointment. The Ghost in the Darkness, The Saint, which I quite enjoyed, Joe the King, Red Planet, Pollock, Hard Cash, Blind Horizon, Spartan, an episode of Entourage, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I really enjoyed. Not all ages, though. So he has had quite the career. He was even the voice of Kit in the rebooted Knight Rider series. And I actually found he was a good choice for Batman. He could pull off the look of the part. He could act the part. A lot of things are said about Val Kilmer and how easy or difficult it is to work with him. The impression I get is that when he latches onto an idea that he is convinced will make the movie better, it's very, very hard to talk him out of it. But that is the goal, is making the movie better. He just has some, shall we say, unpopular ideas about what elements will make the movie better and which ones won't. But it it sounds like his goal for why he does what he does and why some of the friction comes in on the set is coming from a good place where he is aiming to make a better film. The next major cast member we have was also a choice of recasting. When Billy D. Williams joined the first movie, he had a contract clause that said when his character Harvey Dent became Two-Face, he would be the one to play it. They didn't use his character in Batman Returns. And when they were coming back for Batman Forever, Schumacher didn't feel that Billy D. Williams was the right choice for what he had in mind for Two-Face. So they pulled out Billy D. Williams and bought out his contract and brought Tommy Lee Jones in instead, after a couple of other options fell through. But Tommy Lee Jones was brought in largely because of Schumacher's experience working with him on the client. Now, he also had a fair career up to this point. He'd been working fairly steadily since 1970. He just didn't really have a standout role until we get to The Fugitive in 1993, and that's where things really start moving forward for him. We go from The Fugitive to Blown Away to The Client to Natural Born Killers. There's Batman Forever in there. After that, we have Volcano, Men in Black, Small Soldiers, Double Jeopardy, Rules of Engagement, Space Cowboys, Men in Black 2, The Missing, No Country for Old Men, The Company Men, Captain America First Avenger, Men in Black 3, Hope Springs. So definitely a lot of high-quality, and respected films from Tommy Lee Jones. Now, there's another one that was a bit of odd casting, and I'll go through some of the casting choices along the way and what was and was not the original choices and so forth. The next one was Jim Carrey as the Riddler. So this is coming in after he'd done The Duck Factory, Once Bitten, Peggy Sue Got Married, Earth Girls Are Easy, Pink Cadillac, but the real big release for him up to this point the three ones were Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. Those had all come out in 1994. So Jim Carrey was probably at the height of his popularity when they brought him in for Batman Forever. And he followed from there into Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, Cable Guy, Liar, Liar, Truman Show. 
So his career since then has been hit and miss, but the three films he released before this were all huge hits. They brought in a new love interest. There was some talk about bringing Catwoman back, but they didn't want to have three villains. Because one of the issues with having multiple villains in a two-hour film is they felt you really need to have them team up and work together, otherwise the story's going all over the place. You have to question why you're putting them in the same movie instead of two different movies. So instead of bringing Catwoman back, they decided to introduce a new character as a love interest who's not a villain. And they brought in Nicole Kidman for Chase Meridian, who was not present in the comics at all. There was also a bit of a recasting choice for Robin. Robin had never appeared, neither had Dick Grayson, his alter ego, but they did have another actor in line for the part before they cast Chris O'Donnell. Now, when this movie came out, Chris O'Donnell was about to turn 25, which makes him one of the older boy wonders, which could be why at no point in the film do they ever refer to him as boy wonder. The returning cast includes Michael Gaugh as Alfred Pennyworth, and he still delivers that role quite well. Pat Hingle also returned as Commissioner Gordon, and he gets a little more screen time and a little more respect than he did in Batman Returns, I feel. Batman Returns, he seemed very dependent on the services of Batman to help fight crime in Gotham City. Here, he is a little more part of the team. And it's not so much that he's shown in an incompetent light. He's out there, he's doing his job. This movie is just very much about the interplay between the Riddler and Batman. So the Riddler is delivering clues to Batman specifically to get him out and get him involved. We've got the past friendship between Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent, which isn't really played up much. They talk about it a little bit, but because we didn't, see that established when Harvey Dent was in the films beforehand. It's a bit of a tougher sell. But the villain choices they made do make it personal for Batman. You can understand why Commissioner Gordon has a smaller role. As we get into some of the smaller roles, we still have some pretty big names. For example, Drew Barrymore is one of the girls that hangs out with Tommy Lee Jones, and her career was taking off as well. So she'd been a big hit since E.T. and Firestarter, of course. She was in Unreconcilable Differences. She'd had a pretty recognizable career. People knew who she was long before. She was mature enough to be considered sort of the sex symbol that she was. Here's Wayne's World 2 had already come out at this point. Boys on the Side had come out. Mad Love had come out. And she had a smaller role with Sugar. And it sounds like one of the reasons she took this smaller role at that point in her career is because she'd actually been a personal friend of Joel Schumacher since she was a child. Following Batman Forever, she went into Everyone Says I Love You, Wishful Thinking, Scream, Best Men, Wedding Singer, Ever After, Home Fries, Hercules, Never Been Kissed, All of the Other Reindeer, Titan A.E., Charlie's Angels, The Simpsons, Donnie Darko, Freddy Got Fingered, Riding in Cars with Boys, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, Fifty First Dates, Curious George, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, He's Just Not That Into You, Whip It, Saturday Night Live, Family Guy, Blended, Her Career was not short, and it is still very much active today. Now, the other character with Two-Face, there's sort of the good girl and the bad girl with, and the other one is Debbie Mazar. Her career prior to this was not as pronounced, largely because she was basically Madonna's makeup artist before she got into acting. She had a few roles, including The Doors, the remake of Little Man Tate, Malcolm X, Toys... So I Married an Axe Murderer, Beethoven's Second, Bullets Over Broadway. That's all before Batman Forever. She followed with Empire Records, Girl 6. So again, she's had a career that has continued quite a bit. She does have 95 acting credits at the time of this reporting, some of which are still unreleased. So a very respectable career there, although the roles that she had before Batman Forever weren't terribly notable. So she was clearly a working actress, but she hadn't really had a central role, and after Batman Forever still hadn't. She was just the bad girl in Two-Face's Entourage. 
There are also a number of roles that are essentially cameos. So one of them is Gossip Gertie, is the name of the role anyway. She's played by Elizabeth Sanders. She's in both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin as Gossip Gertie, and she's actually the wife of Bob Kane. She was also one of the people in the crowds in Batman Returns, officially credited as Gothamite number four. Now, in a role that would have been an even larger cameo, but still a cameo, we have René Aubergenois as Dr. Burton. He plays Dr. Burton as one of the psychiatrists in Arkham Asylum. We'll get into Arkham Asylum in a little more detail later. But René Aubergenois would be known from genre fans for his work in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Little Mermaid, Benson. He went on to do The Patriot. And this was during the run of Deep Space Nine. So when this came out, most people knew him as Odo. That could be part of the reason he took a small part, because it was a little bit harder to fit it into his schedule that way. And if we go through the deleted scenes, we find that about half his role never even made it into the movie. But if we're really getting into cameos, there are some that are much smaller than that. John Favreau, co-writer and director of the first two Iron Man films, and producer on the third, the guy who played Foggy Nelson in Daredevil, the director of Elf, director of a number of other films... He has one of his first acting credits right here in Batman Forever. So this is after his guest spot on Seinfeld, after Chicago Hope, before Friends. If you look carefully during one of the scenes in at Wayne Tech when they're going through the apparent suicide of one of their employees, there's a number of people standing around Bruce Wayne. John Favreau is one of the guys standing on the far left with no lines. If you're not watching in widescreen, he probably doesn't appear in your copy of the movie. He doesn't move, he doesn't speak, and he's far enough to the side that he'd be cropped out in the pan and scan version. And one of the other cameos is Don the Dragon Wilson. He's tried to, to build some acting career, and he's done a lot of the low-budget martial arts films, but he is mainly known as a martial artist himself. And apparently he is considered one of the greatest kickboxing champions in the history of the sport, if not the greatest kickboxing champion. I don't know nearly enough about kickboxing, to make that judgment, that's just some of the trivia we have on this IMDb page. But he is the head thug that Robin ends up fighting in the alley, along with the others, with that glow-in-the-dark skull face makeup. We also have Kevin Griveaux, or Grivio, G-R-E-V-I-O-U-X. He also didn't have a lot of acting credits up to this point. For the most part, he'd be security officers or random Klingons on both Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. He was one of the henchmen in The Mask. He was a roadblock officer in Congo. Up to this point, he's cast as the really big guy, and that's about it. He's even one of Harvey's thugs in this one. He does go on to have larger roles in other work later. Uh, most recently, he could have been heard as the voice of the Black Beetle in Young Justice. He's also done some writing. He wrote the relaunch of The New Warriors that they had, not the current volume that's going on, but the one previous to this that lasted 20 issues following the Civil War event at Marvel, which was... Not badly written, it just didn't feel like the New Warriors, and Greville himself was one of the first to complain that he didn't get to use any characters in the New Warriors. And we do have a bit of a larger role for a much more recognizable character. I didn't discuss it until this point because it was an uncredited role. So Ed Bagley Jr., son of course of Ed Bagley Sr., also has a job in this movie. He plays Edward Digma's original boss at Wayne Tech Enterprises, the man who's killed and then doctored to make it look like a suicide. He's got a bit of an interesting history himself. His father was a very well-renowned actor. If you don't know Ed Bagley Sr., go get 12 Angry Men. Watch it now. That is a fantastic movie. In that film, Ed Bagley Sr. plays a pivotal, if not particularly likable, character. That's just, it's a fantastic one-set film. 
based on a play, cannot recommend it enough. But Ed Begley Sr. didn't like the way that Hollywood was running things. He didn't feel it was appropriate and didn't want his kids to be living through what he wanted, so he actually forbade his son, Ed Begley Jr., from doing any acting, which is why Ed Begley Jr. doesn't have any roles until his father passed away. He had a huge passion for it, but he just respected his father's wishes while he was with us, and then stepped up and started doing the acting afterwards. And he's got a fairly prominent role, but it's also an uncredited role in this film. So those are the major cast members. Going through the crew, we also have a few notable names here. Elliot Goldenthal does the score for this one. And he started with that, doing the composing work in 1979 with Cocaine Cowboys. He did Pet Cemetery. He did Alien 3, Demolition Man, the TV movie of Roswell. He had done Cobb at this point. Following Batman Forever, he also did Voices, Heat, A Time to Kill, Michael Collins, Batman and Robin, and more after that we'll discuss after Batman and Robin. So he's the one that stepped in after Danny Elfman was no longer involved. Again, he would have been a little bit cheaper, and it was a much lighter score. I think Danny Elfman's later work proves that he could have done something quite well with Batman Forever, but I understand why they would want to move in a different direction. So we don't get that classic and memorable dun 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 that Danny Elfman brought in. That theme is gone here. Now, I actually enjoy Elliot Goldenthal's work on this more than I do on the sequel. I'll get into that. Here, there's nothing that really stands out and sounds great, but there's also nothing off-putting or that feels out of place. So he basically gets the job done, but doesn't really grab your attention while doing it, which in some ways is what you want from a score. You don't necessarily want to be sitting there focusing on the music to the exclusion of the story. You want something that complements it. The cinematographer that we have here is Stephen Goldblatt. He's also done good work. His career goes back to 1969 in this. He has done Forum, Passive Groves, Outland, Return of the Soldier, The Cotton Club, Young Sherlock Holmes, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, Joe vs. the Volcano, Prince of Tides, Consenting Adults, and Pelican Brief prior to this. After Batman Forever, he did Striptease and then went on to Batman and Robin. So we'll discuss the rest of his career after Batman and Robin. But as a cinematographer, he did a decent job as well. There's a lot of well-chosen shots, and it evokes the mood of the film. Like Elliot Goldenthal's work, nothing really stands out as eye-catching, but there's nothing that stands out as being poorly done either. It's a well-assembled film. It also had two editors, namely Mark Stevens and Dennis Verkler. Stevens, up to this point, had done the editing on My Wicked Wicked Ways. The Legend of Errol Flynn is his premiere job with a TV movie in 1985. He did Who Gets the Friends TV movie in 1988. Batman Forever was his first theatrical release. Then he wanted to chain reaction, Batman and Robin, and more that we'll discuss with the Batman and Robin podcast. Now, he worked with Dennis Verkler as well, and it doesn't look like they do a lot of work together. Looking at his editing credits, we've got The Wide World of Mystery, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Turn of the Screw, Chosen Survivor, Satan's Triangle, Kansas City Massacre, Burnt Offerings, Dead of Night, Dog and Cat, Cruise into Terror, When Every Day Was the Fourth of July, The Bad News Bears Go to Japan, Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, Xanadu, Continental Divide, Sharky's Machine, Airplane 2, the sequel, the 1983 Independence Day, not the 1995 one, Gorky Park, Secret Admirer, Miracles, Nobody's Fooled, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, The Double Agent episode. Big Shots, Distant Thunder, The Favorite, The Hunt for Red October, Free Jack, Falling from Grace, A Couple Episodes of Tales from the Crypt, Under Siege, The Fugitive, Only the Strong, Batman Forever. Then you go into Devil's Own, Batman and Robin, and more after that. So it is a pretty respectable casting crew. There's none of them that really stand out as confusing. It's not like people went, oh, Mr. Mom is Batman. There were no roles that seemed really out of place. There was some talk about Chris O'Donnell that I remember from working in the theater when people were looking at it going, isn't he too old? Because they're used to Boy Wonder Robin being introduced 
as someone in his mid to late teens. That's traditionally the way it is. Depending on who's telling the story, he's been anywhere from 13 to 17 when he first starts working with Batman. It does seem a little out of place here. You could tell the script it did intend him to be a minor. You know, when Bruce Wayne takes him into custody, he said, well, yeah, I only went along with that just for these reasons, because I knew otherwise they'd dump me into social services. 18 and overs don't typically get dumped into social services. So he's clearly written to be 17 or under, even though the actor is just as clearly older than that. Now, speaking of Robin, one of the other crew members that really stands out is Mitchell Gaylord. He was an Olympic-level gymnast. And he, in this role, he filled in as Chris O'Donnell's stunt double. So he does a lot of the acrobatics and a lot of the stunts that Chris O'Donnell is, is supposed to be doing. He's filling in for Robin. And he does it quite well, to the point where in the original script, when they'd written in a brother for Robin, they'd written his name as Chris, presumably because they knew Chris O'Donnell was going to be the guy playing the part. During the stages and the rewrites, they changed that character's name to Mitchell. I can only assume that Chris and Mitchell combination of names was just a reference to the actor and his stunt double. Now, we said that Schumacher was taking things in a new direction, and we'll get into a little of that in more detail now. One of the new directions is that it was aiming a few notches younger on the age scale. So he was trying to recapture some of the families that Warner Brothers was worried about losing following Batman Returns. Part of that is with the color scheme. So instead of being very dark, very gothic, and very expressionist, we get a clear visual image. Schumacher had a specific image in mind that he wanted his Gotham to fit, and we've got that, using some very bright colors and color-coded colors. So when you see these bright colors and these fluorescents associated with Batman, they're typically blue. If it's associated with Two-Face, we're seeing a lot of red, and for the Riddler, we see a lot of green. The casting choices that they had were not quite as intended, so we could see some of how things changed up. As I've already said, Michael Keaton chose not to come back as Batman, so they brought in Val Kilmer after Tombstone. Robin was originally supposed to be Marlon Wayans, who had actually signed, so they had to buy out his contract as well, and they'd signed him for earlier movies and just postponed it because Robin didn't fit in them, but his costume was going to be different than we'd seen traditionally in the comics. The traditional costume is the one we see the Graysons wearing during their show. That's how Robin frequently dresses. They were going to redesign it, and Tim Burton actually helped redesign the Robin costume for the movies. They introduced Tim Drake as a new Robin in the comics shortly before one of the early movies came out, and it seems like that design was the one that was going to be implemented in the movie, so they were bringing the movie design into the comics to have a recognizable Robin. That design didn't actually make it into the movies until Batman Forever came out. So design meant for the movies was in the comics two or three years before it made it to the movies. And, of course, it had Chris O'Donnell wearing it instead of Marlon Wayans. Schumacher didn't think Marlon Wayans would really fit with the direction he was going for. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Marlon Wayans, I guess he was going 100% comedy, Wayans would have fit. He was popular enough and fit that role. He actually had a history of working with Jim Carrey. They knew how to work together from In Living Color, but maybe Schumacher questioned Wayne's ability to pull up the dramatic scenes. Chris O'Donnell's career up to this point had been primarily drama, so that's something that we were sure he could pull off, and he was just a bigger name and a bigger draw at that time, too. Now, with Two-Face, after Billy D. Williams backed out, they did offer it to a few other people, including Mel Gibson. He was actually an earlier choice for this role. He was something that they were shooting for, but he was making his directorial debut with Braveheart and the schedules just didn't mesh well enough. So they had to go with someone else, and they brought in Tommy Lee Jones from The Client. Now, The Riddler is a much longer story in terms of what it is, and we've heard parts of it before. When we were talking about the Tim Burton Batman film from 1989. We talked about how 
the Joker role was originally offered to Robin Williams. Not because they wanted Robin Williams, but because they're using him as bait to get Jack Nicholson to sign. So they offered it to Nicholson. Nicholson wanted to think about it. They offered it to Robin Williams. He accepted. They went back to Nicholson and said, hey, Robin Williams accepted. If you really want the job, you better say so now. And then he took it and Williams got pushed out. And Robin Williams was completely understandably upset by being used in that way. So he wasn't sure that he wanted to work with these guys at all when they came to him to be the Riddler. And... Basically, they offered him the role on a Tuesday. He asked for a couple days to think it over, just because of the bad taste he had in his mouth from the previous Batman films. But most of the individuals that were involved in that time had changed. So the guys that jerked him around weren't part of it anymore. So he was looking for 48 hours to think it over. They offered him that part on the Tuesday, as I said. On Wednesday, they offered the part to Jim Carrey, and he accepted it. So they called... Robin Williams back on Thursday to say, hey, Jim Carrey's interested. If you want to do it, you better say so now. And Williams realized that they were going to be jerking Jim Carrey around the same way he'd been jerked around two films beforehand. And he didn't want to be a part of that. So he said, fine, leave it to Jim Carrey. You're not going to screw him over the way you screwed me over. I'm going to have no part of that. And he walked away because he realized even though there's different people, they were using the same tactics. And a lot of these were not so much Schumacher. A lot of these were coming, well, some of this was even happening before Schumacher was involved. So this would have been the producers and the studio execs at Warner Brothers. Now, the role of Chase Meridian was also recast. That role had originally been offered to Rene Russo when they were expecting Keaton to come back as Batman. But they felt that Rene Russo was too old to be Val Kilmer's love interest. So they needed a recasting, and Schumacher fought very hard to bring Nicole Kidman in. He hadn't finally worked with her, but he did have some involvement with her up to this point, because she had come in and read for the part that went to Julia Roberts in Flatliners. And he felt Julia Roberts was a better fit for that role, but he could tell Nicole Kidman was going places, and he definitely wanted to work with her at some point. Now, as for Rene Russo being too old for Val Kilmer, that's something that shows a little bit of the Hollywood mindset. So if you look at the birthdays, as listed by the Internet Movie Database, Michael Keaton was born in 1951, Rene Russo in 1954, Val Kilmer in 59, and Nicole Kidman in 67. So Rene Russo would have been three years younger than Michael Keaton and five years older than Val Kilmer. But instead we get Val Kilmer, who was about eight years older than Nicole Kidman. I would question whether Rene Russo is then too old to be Val Kilmer's love interest. Five years is not a big deal, especially when you're going from five to seven. It really shows how Hollywood wants younger women than men. You can search around for it. It's not hard to find. There is a major gap. In most Hollywood films where there's major male and female love interests, the male is older, almost universally. Now, in terms of the film itself, it did have some impact on the comics, primarily in the design of Robin's costume. It didn't really change the tone that much. The comics were doing very well with the darker tone that had been established by The Dark Knight Returns, which is Frank Miller's, or at least one of his seminal Batman pieces. It's the one that really got people's attention. And so the, the comics had moved to a darker place, and they weren't really interested at the time in coming back to a brighter place. So other than Robin's outfit, it didn't have a huge impact on it. There were some things that I liked about it in terms of what it was drawing from the comics and how it came from the source material. For example, in this one, Batman doesn't kill. If you go back to Burton movies, in the first one, he wrapped his legs around one of the goons in the bell tower, smashed his head into the bell, and then pulled him down that entire shaft. We saw him blowing up a chemical plant. In Batman Returns, he strapped a bomb to a thug and dropped him down a sewer. This one, it's quite the opposite. Schumacher made a conscious choice to say, well, not only does he not actively kill, he doesn't always save them, but he never kills anyone. He even save some lives. So in the opening sequence, the thug is about to fall down an elevator shaft, much like the thug he threw down the shaft in the first one, except this time he catches him and throws him into another guy who'd been tased. So he's still contained, 
but he actually saves the thug's life. One of the other things I like about it is it's actually the first complete live-action origin story. Batman's full origin hadn't been covered up to this point. There was one throwaway line in the Adam West series where Adam West mentions that his parents had been killed when he was a child. That doesn't show up in the movie, that was just the TV series. The origin story was told in full in an episode of Galactic Guardians, The Superpowers Team, which is an animated episode from the 1980s. Then we get Tim Burton's Batman, where we find out Bruce Wayne's parents were killed, but there's no indication that specifically made him decide to become Batman until the end when he's facing off the Joker and says, I made you, you made me first. And even the Joker's confused. He's like, I, I don't know how this works. Batman says, well, you killed my parents. That's the only hint that we have. This one actually tells the full origin story. We see his parents die. We see that the bat scares him, and that's why the bat imprint is there. And we also hear him saying, I made a vow at that point. I was going to stop this from happening to other people. And this is the first time that we actually get that in a theatrical release. I also like Val Kilmer's role as Batman. He actually has a pretty good take on it. He's not quite the playboy that he often is. He's not the scatterbrain that Michael Keaton portrayed him as. Instead, he is the believable CEO of a major tech company. He seems preoccupied. He seems dedicated to the jobs. He wouldn't, still wouldn't make that connection, oh, Bruce Wayne is Batman. But you do believe, yes, he's capable and respected even as Bruce Wayne which is something I like. There's a, comes a time where, you know, if you have a company like this, you need that cover story. Yeah, in the comics, Bruce Wayne is treated as sort of a flighty playboy to throw people off, but you go back to Detective Comics 19, or issue 27 from 1939, Bruce Wayne also lives in a house in the suburbs. So he's inherited enough money to live off of, but he's not multimillionaire owner of Wayne Tech. And speaking of origin stories, we also get some very good origin stories for both Robin and Two-Face here. So Robin's origin stories in the comics was almost exactly like this. Instead of four people, there's three, but the fourth does make more sense for a group of acrobats. They were traveling with Haley's Circus, and they were killed while they were performing because someone sabotaged the equipment. Now, in the original, it was actually a mobster, Tony Zuko, who ordered the hit and had it executed against Dick's parents because he was trying to shake down the circus owner, and the circus owner was saying no. Here, they shift that from Tony Zuko to Two-Face, but I'm okay with that. It makes the story more personal, and frankly, in the comics, Two-Face didn't exist when Dick's parents were killed, especially since Zuko has had a relatively small role in the comics since then. His only really good extended story was during Kyle Higgins' run on the Nightwing title in the New 52, which I highly recommend. Now, it is called Nightwing instead of Robin because Dick Grayson sort of grew up, and when he got out from under Batman's wing and sort of became his own man in about 1984, he took on a new name, and that name was Nightwing, which is why it's thrown out as one of the suggestions that Dick Grayson has for what to call himself. The comics, the name has a different origin, but it ties pretty closely to the Superman mythos as well, so I understand why they didn't really cover it here. So we also get a very good adaptation of the Two-Face origin. When it comes to the events that transform Harvey Dent into Two-Face, that is pretty much spot on and a very exact fit to what created Two-Face in the source material. One of the other things that you can applaud here if you'd like, whether you agree with Schumacher's vision or not, where he takes it less dark and a little more family-friendly and very neon and more comedic, he did do it coherently and consistently throughout this particular film. And we get this style established in the first few seconds when we see that day glow blue Batmobile and Alfred saying, would you like to take a sandwich? Oh, I'll get drive through. Right there, that sets up the tone that we're going to see. So whether that's the tone of Batman films you prefer or not, honestly, I don't. I've got to respect the fact that yes, he had a vision and it was executed coherently and consistently throughout the extent of this movie. I also think Chase Meridian is actually a very good love interest. She's written as intelligent, 
when you see her practicing with the punching bag, you get the impression that she can take care of herself if she really needs to. So she's not your femme fatale. She's not typically your damsel in distress. We see a little more of that later when she and Bruce Wayne are both trying to fight off the thugs in Wayne Manor. Plus, I mean, Nicole Kidman. She's gorgeous. And we also get enough of an establishment that she is a psychologist who recognizes that she's consistently attracted to the wrong man. So we get why Batman or Bruce Wayne is the man she's attracted to. We also get that she's a good fit for Bruce Wayne himself. So this actually is a very good pairing. Chase Meridian is a character I'd be quite happy to see show up in the comics, quite frankly. I also like the way that we see Robin in a fight when he's protecting the girl in the alley after he first founds out that Bruce Wayne is Batman and he takes the Batmobile for a very clumsy joyride. He holds his own. I mean, he really doesn't have the same impact Batman does. He doesn't send people running, but he does give the very clear impression that most times, if he's taking someone one-on-one, he can take them one-on-one. Alfred is always great when he's played by Michael Gach, so that works well. We also see that these incarnations of the Riddler and Two-Face do make a very good pair. Each of them recognizes his own shortcomings. Each of them brings something to the table. We get a lot more in Two-Face in terms of the set design. So Two-Face's lair, his costumes, that dichotomy is brought through start to finish. So a lot of this was handled well. The Riddler himself, I don't know, it's hard for me to say whether or not Jim Carrey is a good fit for the Riddler. Because once we see him here, if they were looking at Robin Williams to start off with, this was not the way the role would have played out for Robin Williams. So Jim Carrey was very much doing his own thing. And if you enjoy Jim Carrey's kind of thing, you'll enjoy him here. He's got his stamp all over it. So that's the good. When we get into the bad, uh, basically there's the rest of Two-Face's portrayal. Like I said, they got the origin right. They got the look right. They got the sets right. But even when we're going through the history of the character and looking at the way he's executed here, it's not the comic book Two-Face. When you listen to Schumacher's commentary, it really feels like he's getting unreliable information second or third hand. In the movie, Two-Face has multiple personality disorder, and Schumacher refers to the characters as Harvey Dent and Harvey Two-Face, and the coin that he flips determines how violent the crime will be. So if it comes up with the clean side, he's going to sort of not take part in the violence, but it doesn't mean he's not going to use you as bait. He still may do something nasty to you. He just won't kill you. Whereas if the scratch side comes up, well, then you're done. You're dead. That's quite different from the comics, where he first appears as Harvey Kent. They changed that last name in order to avoid confusion with another famous character at National Comics before it became DC. And when he becomes Two-Face, he just loses the sense of right and wrong. So he recognizes this is the right column, this is the wrong column. He can sort things out, but he doesn't know which he should be doing. So when he tosses the coin in one of his earliest appearances and the scarred face shows up, he leads his gang to go rob a bank. When he tosses the coin and the clean side goes up, he doesn't do a less violent crime. They give those stolen goods to charity. So when the good side comes up, he does something that's honestly and truly good, and that's Harvey Dent, district attorney, coming through again. And we don't really get a sense of that here, that the coin, even at the end, he's flipping the coin, flipping the coin, and he's impatient and upset that the clean side comes up. And he flips it again, and he flips it again, and when the scarred side comes up, then he gets out and gets involved. That's not the comic Two-Face. That coin is absolute. He flips it once. If it comes up clean, we do the good thing. We do not take part in this at all. He would have called the gang off and left. He wouldn't have been in there at all unless the scratched face came up in the first place, and then he would have followed it all the way through without flipping the coin during it, unless there was a new decision to be made. One of the other things that's not enjoyable for me here is the Riddler's plan and the Riddler's origin. This is not the comic book character at all, aside from the costume and giving out the riddles. There is no brain-sucking 3D TV. Now, I understand that Schumacher was sending a message about what he felt about TV with that, but it causes some major plot problems. 
These villains are stealing the intelligence of everyone in Gotham and is starting to spread outside Gotham. They stole Bruce Wayne's intelligence himself, and he beats them by outsmarting him. You should be completely incapable of outsmarting these guys. These guys should be ruling the world. You'd have to come at it a different way. You'd have to distract them or deliberately mislead them to one place and shut down the equipment first. So yeah, Batman does shut down the equipment, but they should have seen it coming. So that's the good, that's the bad. Some of the stuff that's just outright ugly. And this is worse than just deviating from the comics. Every filmmaker is going to do their own thing for some degree. But in this one, Batman doesn't even learn his own lesson. The whole movie, Bruce Wayne is telling Robin, you don't want to cross that line, you don't want to become a killer. And he's first just tries shutting him out of the superhero life when he realizes he can't. He does eventually take him on as a partner with Alfred's help to bring him in and start going in that direction. And when we see towards the end, there appears to be some level of redemption, right? Robin beats up Two-Face, saves his life, and Two-Face says, oh, the bat has taught you well. And yet, a few minutes later, Robin and Chase Meridian have already fallen. Batman has managed to save them both. And then, when they're confronted with Two-Face, when Batman's actually closer to the bottom of the shaft, he throws out the coins, he confuses Two-Face, Two-Face falls, Batman lets him fall. He's already proven he could have saved Two-Face in this situation. He chooses not to. He hasn't learned the very lesson that was attributed to him when Dick Grayson chose not to kill. The Riddler's defeat is anticlimactic. So, yeah, he breaks the device, and that breaks the Riddler. If you really watch, you also see that Robin is really the only one who takes a proactive approach to defeating these villains. Had the rookie Robin actually disarmed Two-Face, he would have had this done. He beat him, he saved him, and he brought him in. When it came time to defeat the Riddler, Batman took out a piece of technology he didn't completely understand and then happened to shut down the Riddler with it. He let Two-Face die. And the other major issue I have with this is when Batman has the line that I've never been in love before when he's talking about his feelings for Chase Meridian. Which not only undoes some of the comic book backstory, but it's a bit of a slap in the face to the first two films. Even though this is apparently supposed to be the same model. I mean, they brought Pat Hingle through, they brought Michael Goch through. So those are things I have real problems with. The tone itself, like I said, it's not my favorite tone of Batman, but that doesn't make it an invalid tone. There are some people who would really enjoy it, and that's quite clear from the box office standings. This came out on June 16th, 1995, with a budget that included about $100 million. Now, that's not entirely production budget. Someone that went to buy out Billy D. Williams and buy out Damon Wayans and things like that. It had a domestic gross of $184 million, which puts it just $7 million behind Toy Story and the second for the year, number one PG-13 film of the year. The eventual worldwide gross was $336 million. So this made a lot of money just off the box office. It was a big hit on the toy market. There were multiple bat suits in the movie that all got toys, multiple Robin outfits, three Riddler costumes. As I said before, I was working at a theater when this came out, and this hit huge with younger audiences, especially boys in grades about four to six. We had some guys who were seeing it again and again and again. A lot of the comic fans were less happy with it because they saw it as moving further from at least the current state of the comics, but it was an incredibly popular film that year. At the time it came out, it opened on a record number of screens with a record number of copies of the film. So it actually opened in 2,893 theaters, many of those showing in a multiple screen. Small by today's standards, but that was huge at the time. As I said, that was record setting. So a sequel to this was pretty much guaranteed. Well, that wraps up our coverage of Batman Forever. Join us again on the 14th of the month in July when we cover Batman and Robin, followed by Mask of the Phantasm in August, Catwoman in September, and then come October, November, December, we're going to go through the Nolan cycle. So please join us again next month. You can send any feedback, 
to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. You can find us on Bureau 42, iTunes, or Stitcher. And thank you for listening.